thankful to be here this evening and to have the distinct privilege uh, to uh, stand before you and speak to you for a few moments this evening. If the Lord would bless us to do so, I would like to deal with a a question rather than simply taking a text as I normally do and trying uh, to preach um, on uh, the meaning of that text in, in extreme in a way that might be edifying to the Lord's people, I would like to uh, consider a topic this morning or this evening. And that uh, topic is <clears throat> what is my purpose? Why am I here? Um, and by that, um, we can narrow down very focus uh, in a very focused way and say, why am I here tonight? Um, but the answer to that question um, is contained in a, the answer to a larger question, and that is, why do I exist? Why, why am I here? What, what is my purpose? Now, <clears throat> if we step back from that question as far as possible, um, and that's what we want to do, we want to step back from it as far as we can, and look at it in a cosmic sense, that is to say, in, in the sense of all that is. Um, and then we want to start narrowing it down and bring it down to, to me. Why am I here tonight? What, what is my purpose for being here tonight? In the broadest sense, in the cosmic sense of all that exists, there are only two possibilities. And... Um, how we approach um, our own existence um, in regard to one of those two possibilities um, will determine the course of our lives. Okay? There are two possibilities. One is that matter and energy are eternal that matter has always existed and that um, my present position here on earth um, is a result of a cosmic rolling of the dice, that it's pure chance that I'm me and that I exist as I do and as a consequence of evolution, as a consequence of genetic mutation, um, as a consequence of uh, the alignment of matter so that we have uh, the universe and have solar systems and uh, planets and um, this planet exists in exactly the way it does um, so that it can have atmosphere. Um, and because of uh, that, um, there was a primordial uh, mixing of elements and voila, I'm here. <clears throat> now there are significant implications to that view of the world. <clears throat> that if existence is simply a matter of eternal matter, which in and of itself um, gives a, is, is premised on a question 
for which um, there can be no answer. And that is, if matter is eternal, where did matter come from? Okay. <clears throat> so to believe that we are um, the product of cosmic chance requires um, faith based on a leap of faith because there is no evidence to prove that matter has already always existed. Okay? So you have to begin with superstition um, in order to hold that position. You have to, you have to begin um, from the position um, that I believe in something that there is uh, no evidence to support and no way um, to evaluate whether or not it's true. The scientific method will not work on that uh, proposition that matter always exists. You can't prove that matter has always existed. You can only believe it, and you have to believe it by a blind faith because there's no empirical evidence to support that. Okay? <clears throat> the other um, is that I'm here because God made man. Amen. I'm here <clears throat> because um, God um, is the eternal, um, uncaused, first cause of all else. Amen. And that <clears throat> when God made man, he made man with purpose, <clears throat> and he made man um, to be capable of fulfilling the purpose for which he was made. Now, <clears throat> that particular position will, um, that particular belief will take you to a completely different place than um, the belief that man was uh, simply a product of eternal matter that came into our present form um, as a consequence of cosmic chance that is uh, referred to as evolution. On the one hand, if man is a product of cosmic chance, then, then um, uh, all meaning where man is concerned um, is contained in man and all knowledge where man is concerned is contained. In other words, we are, a, we are closed entities. There is, uh, there is nothing um, to be understood um, or that can be understood that is beyond the scope of man's own experience. Do you, are you following me on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that if, there, um, if man is simply um, a biological machine then all there is to know about man um, is the mechanics. You know, how we work. And the conclusion of man um, is to dissolve back into the cosmic uh, pool. That's it. But it goes even further than that, <clears throat> that if all knowledge and understanding <clears throat> originates in man um, and 
Uh, man's application of that understanding also is the product of man. <clears throat> then um, whatever values man decides are appropriate, those are the right values. You see that? <clears throat> that if, um, if only man exists, then it cannot possibly be true <clears throat> that man has rights that are unique um, to humanity. In other words, there is no such thing as inalienable rights if man is a cosmic machine. You see that? <clears throat> the reason for that is we didn't start as man. And if the cosmic rolling of the dice continues, we will not continue as man. And whenever the rolling of the cosmic dice finally stops, um, we will cease to be man. And that being the case, there's nothing intrinsic to humanity. There's nothing innate. There's nothing special or unique um, about being a human being any more than being a dog or a guppy or a bacteria. <clears throat> that um, all of those things are what they are and the value of all of those things resides um, in the same process of the cosmic rolling of the dice. It just came up a different number where the bacteria are concerned. You see that? See how that, all that works? <clears throat> that means that um, if there are no inalienable rights, then <clears throat> there can be um, no basic values. You see that? There is no foundation uh, for morality other than what man decides um, is the right thing to do um, in a given circumstance. And incidentally, that's how we got where we are today. That a hundred years ago, <clears throat> um, our nation, in large measure, um, was a nation um, which, uh, by consensus, embraced uh, the Judeo-Christian principle of a creator God. And over the last hundred years or so, <clears throat> the um, philosophy of secular humanism, and more specifically of existential secular humanism, um, has gained in momentum, gained in ground, gained in popularity, gained in acceptance, um, until uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, balance has shifted away from the Judeo-Christian principle uh, consensus of a creator God um, to the humanistic principle that man is just a uh, 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 a creation of chance based upon the rolling of the dice of the genetic pool. <clears throat> and that belief has overtaken our institutions 
um, to such an extent that we see, for instance, uh, I'm going to lay out, I'm going to quote you a text here in a minute, um, but I want to lay out the problem first. I want you to understand what the problem is first. Here are some problems with um, secular humanism. When, <clears throat> when um, John Locke, um, under the influence of the, of the right, John Locke was a philosopher that um, influenced um, Thomas Jefferson in the wording of the Je Declaration of Independence, and Locke was influenced in turn by a fellow by the name of Richard Hooker, who was a, uh, an English clergyman who wrote on um, the um, laws of God in nature. And <clears throat> Hooker talks about life, um, liberty, and um, the practice of well-being, which Locke then um, took and said was the practice of life and liberty and, the, um, and property. And by property, he meant the product of one's labor. And so, and so property had to do with you owning yourself and using yourself um, to um, secure yourself in society through your labors. That's what he meant by property, and that's why Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote that, instead of saying property, which people would think of in a commercial sense, um, he said the pursuit of happiness, and what he was referring back to was to Richard Hooker's concept, um, which is the practice of moral well-being. That's what pursuit of happiness means in the Declaration of Independence. The pursuit of moral well-being. In other words having peace with God, whereby God blesses you um, so that um, when your ways please the Lord, he makes even your enemies to have peace with you. And so <clears throat> we have these concepts, which Jefferson said were inalienable human rights. In other words, part of being a human being um, is um, the right um, to own your life and to live your life um, and to have um, liberty of conscience to, to hold your opinions um, as valuable to yourself and as um, not um, uh, to have others impose their opinion on you by force and to own your own labor. Now, owning your own labor is another way of saying it violates human rights to enslave a person. Because when you enslave a person, you own their labor. You see? <clears throat> so when he talks about um, um, a pursuit of happiness, incorporated in that pursuit of happiness is the ownership of one's own labor, um, which is to say um, it is a violation of human rights to enslave a person because now you have taken possession of their labor. And a great war was fought here in the United States over that issue, and it was resolved. And today, <clears throat> um, when people speak of slavery, you never hear anyone <clears throat> compliment slavery. You never hear um, anyone um, long for the good old days of slavery. You never hear um, anyone uh, have the least 
um, uh, possible positive word about the institution of slavery. We all hate slavery, don't we? Isn't that fair to say? We all hate slavery, don't we? Okay. The problem is some of us hate slavery for the wrong reason. Some of us hate slavery um, as a matter of political correctness, which is to say in this humanistic, mechanical um, uh, uh, construct of uh, human existence, we hate slavery um, because um, it is a value that we embrace to hate slavery. Whereas if you believe in a creator God, you hate slavery because it violates the human right of um, ownership of one's own labor. You see the difference in that? I pray for the day when political correctness finally catches up on the issue of abortion. Because there are those of us that hate abortion because it violates the human right of sanctity of life. And yet the politically correct crowd um, haven't arrived at that yet. They haven't reached that point of enlightenment. They haven't made the logical connection that if it is reprehensible um, to steal a person's labor, it's certainly reprehensible to steal their life. And those moral inconsistencies are all over the place. The Supreme Court of the United States um, has the law of Moses um, uh, 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 engraved across the front of the building. They invoke um, God's providence over them in their decision making. And then they make decisions that it's against the law to pray in school. Do you see the moral inconsistency of that? Senators and and, uh, uh, the House of Representatives uh, begins every session of Congress with a prayer. Sometimes it's a mockery of a prayer. A woman. But nevertheless, they begin with a prayer and then they want children expelled who would dare to pray publicly in school. Do you see the moral inconsistency there? Okay, here is the reason for that. We'll we'll get into this now. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I'm sorry, um, we're going to start with John chapter 1. Genesis says kind of the same thing. But we want to uh, look at what John has to say in this regard. In John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth into darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. And there's the problem. 
You see, if you go over to the Genesis account of that, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes through that and he talks about creating light. And it says, and the Lord um, saw the light um, and it was good. And the parallel between two of these isn't simply the creation of uh, the uh, wave uh, uh, forms, the amplitudes, and and I forget what the other part of the um, uh, wave form scale is, but um, the wave forms of physical light. But he's talking about something more profound than that. You see, when, when God created light, Before he ever said, let there be light, God in his own thinking knew what he wanted light to be. And then he commanded for light to exist. And whatever it was that that, um, um, he commanded to construct light, in fact did so, And it came into existence um, in precisely the quality of light that God had in mind uh, before he ever stated, let there be light. Our God is so powerful that he can say, he can take nothing and say, you will be something And the thing that you will be is light, and nothing um, uh, uh, obeys God and becomes precisely the something that he purposed it to be. You see that? You see that there was an obedience um, in, uh, in in the cosmos. And now consider for a moment how different that is than the than the uh, cosmic rolling of the dice. And what we see in that, and this is this is the point that I want, what we see um, in God, that simple statement, and God saw the light, that it was good. God saw the light, that it was good. And what we see in that is not simply... Um, uh, uh, are purely an aesthetic appreciation um, for the, uh, the characteristics of light, <clears throat> but rather um, there is a moral connotation to that statement <clears throat> because um, even nothing was subject to obey God and become what he purposed it to be when he said, let there be light. Now what that proves, or what that indicates, is the moral quality of creation. That there is a moral quality to the creation. In each instance, when God made something, before he purposed to make it and commanded its existence, um, he knew specifically what it was he purposed. And then he gave commandment, let there be light. And there was light in obedience to God. Now what that does 
is it establishes two things. The first thing that it establishes is God's moral authority. If you don't remember anything else from this message tonight, remember God's moral authority. And since he demonstrated his moral authority um, at the uh, very first act of the dawn of creation, we understand um, that there is no higher moral authority. Do you see that? There is no higher moral authority than God. You may recall over in Acts of the Apostles when after Jesus had ascended back into heaven and the apostles were so filled up with, um, with rejoicing and the power of the Holy Ghost and they were going to the temple and they were telling people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he had died for their sins. And the people who had murdered the Savior took exception. And they cast him in prison. And the prison doors were opened in the night. And they went out and went back to the temple to preach some more. And the report came back to the high priest that they were back in the temple. And they sent the guards for him. And the guards brought him back. And they said, didn't we straightway command you um, that you would not speak of Jesus in the temple? And Peter said this. He said, it's better to obey God than man. Do you understand what Peter is saying there? Now understand, Peter is saying this to the people who had just murdered the Lord. So this isn't simply, you know, eighth grade debate about whether or not uh, it's appropriate to to, uh, pray in school. You know, this is, my life is on the line. And Peter said, God's moral authority supersedes the authority of man. You see, as a consequence of original sin, and I'm I'm kind of jumping around at this, not really getting to where I want to go. In consequence of original sin, you know, in in John's writings, it says that... that, the, that the Word, who is Christ Jesus, he tells us in verse 14 that he's speaking about Jesus, that the uh, Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he says that um, uh, the Word um, was the life and the light of men, and that the light shineth into darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. And what he's saying there, and, um, and again, this goes back to which worldview you're going to take, What he's saying there is that um, Christ, who is the Christ Jesus, who is the Word, who is the Creator, who made the heavens and the earth, um, created man, um, gave life to man, is the sustaining principle of life in man. According to the laws of nature, he set up all the laws of nature. He's the reason you can breathe while you're still asleep. He's the reason your heart doesn't stop beating when you go to sleep. And so he is the life of man. And the reality of the Creator God um, is uh, in, in one place. Uh, let's go over and read this uh, the effects of original sin. Let's go over to uh, uh, Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, let's, let's begin in, um, in verse 19. He says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. That's Paul saying when John wrote 
um, that the light shined into darkness and the darkness comprehended it not, Paul said what he meant by that um, is that God can be known um, simply by considering yourself. That unbelief in God um, is a side effect, in a prime, or not a side effect, it's a, it's a profound effect of sin. <clears throat> because we can look at the creation and understand as we look at it and see things such as um, conservation of energy, where, for instance, the DNA of, uh, of uh, animals and the DNA of humans uh, share a lot in common. We have very, in some instances, we have similar respiratory systems. We have similar uh, circulatory systems. We have similar nervous systems. Um, and the Lord is saying, I'm not going to redesign the circular system every time I make a living creature. I'll just modify it where it needs to be modified and use it over and over in all the species. That's called conservation of energy. And you do that if you're designing something um, and you want to be efficient. You, what, you use what works. If it's worked in the past, use it again. And if it needs to be changed a little bit, you change it a little bit. And any engineer um, or any software developer will tell you that they reuse code all the time. And just make little changes here and there. And that's called intelligent design. And we can look at nature and see that there is intelligent design. And there cannot be intelligent design if there's not an intelligent designer. And so we can look at nature itself and see there is a God except that sin has made us blind and crazy. And so he says here, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it to, unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now think about that for a moment, if you will. Do you understand that, when, that our understanding of God's eternal power, there are two criteria for our understanding of God's eternal power. One is that he's the uncaused first cause, that nothing precedes God, that he himself sustains himself eternally, so he possesses eternal power. And the other is he gives eternal life. Think about that. He said, you can look at the um, eternal existence of God and understand that he possesses an eternal power so that if he chooses, he can give eternal life. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And why wouldn't you believe that? Because sin makes us crazy. He says, and because of all this, they're without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, Neither were great were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, and the light shineth into darkness. Do you see that? Our foolish hearts are darkened, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. In other words, sin has made us stupid, and when the light of God shines on us, we're too stupid to realize that it's the light of God. And incidentally, we go back and forth on that one. Sometimes we think it's a lie to God, sometimes we don't. That's the warfare of the flesh. He says, professing themselves to be wise, 
They became fools. And listen to this. Here's the humanism, folks. This is where the primordial cosmic rolling of the primordial dice in the gene pool comes from. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God unto the image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. In other words, their carnal appetites. He gave them over to their carnal appetites. And then he says, um, who changed the truth of God into a lie. See, the truth of God is he is the creator. The lie is that matter has always existed. You see that? Change the truth of God into a lie And their reason for doing so was to worship and serve the creature more than the creator. You see, original sin, that was the issue in original sin. Who are we going to worship here? Who are we going to worship? You know, God did something truly marvelous when he gave the law um, to Adam and Eve in the garden. That was a marvelous thing. That was, you know, I, I don't have a word to describe the admiration that I have and appreciation that I have for God in his ability to contrive that law for Adam and Eve in the garden. It was genius. Although genius doesn't apply to God, he's God. He's above genius. But it was genius because this is what he accomplished by giving that law. First of all, we understand that God has moral authority by the creation itself. Well, he announced his moral authority when he gave that law. He said, I'm in charge of morality and it is immoral to disobey me. But that wasn't strictly the reason that he gave that law. That law provided something that man needed. We all want to be appreciated, don't we? And we all want to know when we're doing a good job. We, We like for people to appreciate that we're doing a good job. Well, what that law did is it provided Adam and Eve a way of knowing that they were doing good without having to deal with evil. Think about that for a moment. Without having to deal with evil. You know, that's the way it's going to be in heaven. We're going to understand goodness um, in the complete vacuum of evil. The, The complete non-existence of evil. But Satan came along. i got to shut this down. Satan came along... And he told the first existential lie that was ever presented to man. He said, this is not about the righteousness of God. This is about God being jealous of you. Because he doesn't want you like he is. Now here's the irony of that. Do you recall the description that God assigns to man before he ever makes him? He said, let us make man in our own image. We were already like him. You see that? We were already like him from the standpoint of having a will and having um, higher order thinking and the ability to make decisions uh, based upon what pleased us. God had already told Adam and Eve, uh, dress the garden. He had already told them, name the animals. He had already told them, uh, multiply. 
And all of those things required decisions um, that Adam and Eve could make according to their own good pleasure, just like God makes all his decisions. So we were already more like God than anything else in the creation, and certainly more like God than Satan. And Eve gave in. She used um, humanistic reasoning to believe a humanistic lie, and she looked at the fruit and saw that it was lovely and that it would be good for food and made the pragmatic decision, I'll eat this fruit. And of course, original sin occurred as a consequence of that. Now, I want to close with this thought. Let's, let, uh, let's go over and I'll close with this. Let's go over to um, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, um, when Paul is on Mars Hill, and he's, he is um, standing trial before the Areopagus, which was the Greek high court. And incidentally, this Areopagus that um, Paul is uh, being questioned by and is testifying to is the same um, judicial body that condemned Socrates for death, and the charge against Socrates was one of the charges that was brought against Paul, which was um, bringing forth strange gods, which was punishable by death under Greek law and punishable by death under Roman law. There is a futility that can only end in despair where um, this mechanistic view of creation uh, or, or of material uh, of man, this humanistic mechanistic that we're just the product of the rolling of the cosmic dice um, uh, of the primordial pool. There is a despair um, that that brings into people's lives. And that's the reason everyone is so unhappy. That's the reason people uh, are so intolerant of one another. It's because they're afraid um, and they, they've lost hope. They don't see any basis for anything better. It's where we are today. There is a, a, a despair that has come over our nation today because of unbelief in God. And Paul pointed out that the circumstance that produces that despair he stood up there and he looked around and the Areopagus is a, is a mountaintop um, and surrounding the edge of that mountaintop were pedestals and on these pedestals were all of the graven images, all the pagan gods that the, the Greeks were worshipping. And there was one right over there that was a pedestal with a formless piece of stone and inscribed on that pedestal was the unknown God. Do you understand the significance of them having an unknown God? That despite them having legions of gods, they understood there was still something missing. There were still questions that they couldn't answer. There were still problems that from their standpoint, uh, there was no solution. And so the only thing they could do 
was to throw up their hands in despair and say, despite all the gods we're worshiping, um, we still can't find satisfaction. So we'll just extend our superstition and say, well, the answer's out there somewhere. It may not ever come around in my life. I may not understand it. I may not even understand how to form the question. But it's out there somewhere. And Paul said, you got it right. I'm going to give you the name of the unknown God, and I'm going to tell you the question he answered. And that's what he did on Mars Hill. He preached Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners who was crucified to take away the sins of those that the Father had given him from the foundation of the world and was raised declaring um, their just standing with God by virtue of his sacrifice at Calvary. Some of those guys thought that Paul was crazy. Others said, we need to know more. We want to know You know what Jesus said about those that wanted to know more? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you understand that when Jesus makes that statement in his Sermon on the Mount, that he's saying um, there is a food, there is nourishment for those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. He said, come unto me all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He told the Samaritan woman, I'll give you the bread of life, so that you'll never hunger again. You know what he's talking about with that Samaritan woman? He's saying, uh, in the revelation of who I am, when you finally understand that I am the Christ, that I have come to take away the sins of those that uh, the Father has given me, Uh, that I will finish the work and not one will be lost. That when you come um, to a conviction in your soul um, that that is who I am, you'll never have that question again. You'll know the God who is sadly unknown by so many of our fellow countrymen today and so many around the world today. You'll know you'll find rest, you'll find rest. God bless you. Thank you this evening for your kind attention. I really appreciate it.